take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Romans 8. Romans 8, if you're visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. You don't have a copy of God's Word with you, just look right in front, the basket right in front of you. You'll see a copy of God's Word there. Please take one, follow along, Romans chapter 8. We return, of course, to this passage in the 8th chapter of Romans. We return to this passage and the coming glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's take it again in to start. Let's just set our hearts right, taking it all in. Verse 18, look at it with me as we read it to begin. It says this, the word of God, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, God, we thank you for these words. As we ask each and every week, especially corporately, Lord, would you open our eyes to see them and hear only them with our ears. Father, may our hearts receive them. And by your grace, may we live them for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the opening verses here of this passage. Look at verses 18 to 22. That was our study last Lord's Day. Recall with me specifically, they taught us that the creation, so by the creation, remember, the non-human or the sub-human part, we could say, is waiting with eager longing for its true inhabitants to be revealed. We also learned that the creation was subjected to futility, remember, by that first man, Adam. Following Adam's willing sin, God cursed the creation and subjected it unwillingly. You recall that. And we left off last week, look at verse 22, where it says that the creation groans. Do you remember that? But not an unending groan, uncertain of when the pain will stop. We know those groans, right? This is not an unknown of the pain or that it would ever stop. No, this is a groan like that of verse 22. The pains of childbirth, those type of terminal groans, groans onto glory, right? As labor pains give way to new birth joy, that's the illustration by these inspired words, so too the creation's groan will give way to new creation glory and a renewed earth. So as we pick it up this morning in verse 23, we will see another group to be renewed. We're going to see a lot of parallels in these next few verses. In fact, another group alongside the creation 
that actually, and we're going to see this not only today, but in the weeks ahead, another group that is actually the centerpiece of God's cosmic renewal. They are at the heart of the cosmic redemption that is coming. A group also currently groaning. Let's dig in and look at verse 23. And not only the creation, so note this, not only, we studied the creation, Paul says now not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So note that as we begin this morning, not only the creation groans, but what does Paul say in this letter? He says to these Roman Christians, not only the creation groans, but we ourselves with them Romans, groan too. And that brings us to our first point, and it's simply this, our groan. Our groan. Westmount, creator God is not renewing the creation and discarding man. Just to set the table for this verse in point. Nor is creator God renewing the creation and replacing man. No, this is creator God, this is the context Renewing both the creation and the creatures. Do you see that? Both the creation and the creatures, mankind. And as we noted last week, this is renewed mankind on a renewed earth. The complete renewal. Cosmic renewal. This is, in fact, complete reversal and return to Genesis 1. The way that it was and it should have been. The original design, and now the restored design. Before the first man, Adam, our old head, our old representative, by his actions, by his sin, caused subjection and caused curse. Note this then, God's plan, so fundamental, not just present but future, God's plan has never been to stop, to discard, or to replace. That's never been his plan. Beloved, listen, God's plan has always been in eternity past, note it, to renovate and to renew. That's our God. A God of renovation, a God of renewal. And Westman, we need to note that because immediately, and maybe you're with me in this, you immediately note how very different God is to us in that. Isn't that true? We are the ones that seek to stop and discard and replace we, and this is stating the obvious, we love our disposables, don't we? We are all about what's disposable. It's man who discards. It's man who seeks replacement. And such landfills grow. New is slapped on everything. And no surprise, we don't value the old. We see no use in the old. But God does. By his hand, with his renewal and regeneration. He created us originally in Christian. He will renovate you finally, fully, and completely. That too, verse 18, is part of the coming glory to be revealed to us. Did you know that? Remember, that verse is like the covering of this whole section. Not just the creation, but the created, the creatures. Thus, the creation groans, and not only the creation, but we ourselves too and by this, in immediate context, Paul turns to the Christians reading this letter in Rome, right? And says, you too, we ourselves. Now, we need to stop for a moment as we think about this other group. And we need to take a step back just for a moment so that we are very clear on who this other group is. Pains me that we have to do this, but the trajectory of Christian thinking, so-called these days, we need to do this, Right? Who is this other group that can be excited and, and grown unto glory alongside creation to be renewed? For some of you, you say, well, that's obvious. Bear with me, even if it is so obvious, we need to do this in the day and age we're in. Who is this group alongside the creation? Is it simply all of humanity and mankind? Is it the creation and then the creatures, all of them? If that was true, of course, there would be no need to worry about bad news, right? More, there really would be no such thing as good news. Just news. We're all in a tough shape, but don't you worry, we'll all be okay, right? It's just news. I mean, good news is only good because it is the news of our salvation. And if everyone, every creature is going to be renewed in the end, 
everyone, then we would have rights to say, so what? Right? And of course, boatloads in past history, and this is why we need to pause for a moment this morning, many more growing in the present day believe this. And maybe they're not theologians or so-called liberal modern theologians. They're everyday people on the street that believe what? Everyone is going to be okay in the end. It's universalism rebranded. It says, don't fret. You've heard this. Love wins. We will all be all right. Wink, wink. We're all going to be just fine. And by the way, I get to sleep in on Sundays too, right? You don't. Everyone is going to be okay. You know, it sounds good to some, but sounding good matters little. Here is the key, beloved. Is it true? And here, we learned this in class this morning, right? Is it what God says? Creator has something to say about his created. Is it what God says? Let's look again at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, note this, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves, see that, very, very emphatic in the Greek. We, ourselves, Not everyone else, not all humanity, but note this, a subset and a specific subset of humanity defined by, look, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Who is that? Who are those that have the first fruits of the Spirit? Well, to answer that, and this helps us in our Bible reading too, we need to first understand what that means. Before we jump and say, well, I think it's Christians, what does that expression even mean? And let's pull out the rich theology that's right there in God's word. What are first fruits? In the Old Testament, the term first fruits was an agricultural term that referred to the first or the choicest sheaves of the harvest. Listen, it was a sample, not the sum, right? The first of the harvest. Exodus 23, 19 says this, the best, this is in the law, this is what is to be done by the Israelite, approaching God, the best of the first fruits of your ground, you shall bring into the house of the Lord. See that? The first fruits, the first, the best. Leviticus 23.10, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, what do you need to do first? You shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest before the Lord. See that? Now, What we simply need to note in the Old Testament before we leave it is this first. First fruits is a portion of a whole. And secondly, that the offering was being made by God's people to God. See that? Portion of a whole by God's people to God. Now, as we move to the New Testament, we're going to see the same idea of first fruits. But note this as we continue to work through Scripture. Now, this term, we're going to see it applied to believers. And this is key. For example, later in this letter, we will see first fruits refer to redeemed Israel as a portion of the entire redeemed among the nations, the Gentiles. Redeemed Israel being the first fruits, Romans eleven sixteen. In Romans sixteen five, we'll learn of Eponidas, the first fruit, meaning the first convert from Asia. There, of course, would be many more converts in Asia, but Eponidas would have been the first one. Romans 16, verse 5. Same idea of the Thessalonian believers. You know that language Paul uses with them. With respect to the Thessalonians vis-a-vis the early church. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says they were, note the language, Thessalonians, you were the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And of course, history testifies to that, that the Thessalonian letter is one of the earliest. and They would have been one of the earliest churches. So first fruits is the first portion given related in the New Testament to believing saints. That's the key. Yet there is even more here in this term first fruits. We have to mine out as it relates to us, Christian. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Jeremy set us up for this this morning as we consider the resurrection when we went to the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 15, of course, this is the passage on the resurrection, this chapter. Let's just pick up a portion of it as Paul is explaining to these Corinthians the implications flowing out of the gospel that you see in verses 3 and 4. We're going to scan down to verse 20. 
This is the capstone of gospel truth. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, contrary to what people would have been saying at that time. He has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, see the language, of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, Euphemism there really for passing on, passing away. Those that have gone before these Corinthians. For as by a man came death, there's how you know that's what he's talking about. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And note this language, how it maps right to Romans. Look at it with me in 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This parallel, we learned this in Romans 5, didn't we? And then this, but each in his own order, how will we be made alive? Look at this. Christ, the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. See that? Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, the very first to rise from the grave, the one going before us. Christ is the first fruit, but not only the first, the choicest, the perfect, all of that of the coming resurrection, and he's going before all those who follow in him as Christ so Christian. In the resurrection, Christ was the first to be resurrected. He was a first fruit of that harvest, if you will. Of the resurrection harvest, Christ is first. Christ is the choicest of God's own that will experience bodily renewal. Now back to Romans. And let's hold that. Hold that. The coming resurrection harvest, the first fruits, right? That's the language we just saw. As the coming resurrection glory is in view. Remember, that is indeed the context, the coming glory to be revealed. So this is what Paul is talking about. The context here, verse 18, is the glory that is to be revealed to us, right? Hence, those who have, here it is, let's put it together, the first fruits of the Spirit are those who have experienced in part and are in process a preview and a glimpse of the coming resurrection. From Christ to Pentecost, to Rome, to Peterborough. Those who've experienced in preview form the first fruits of the Spirit. We see not rising or raising our bodies yet, but raising our soul. The first fruit. Those who have the first fruits of the Spirit have the Holy Spirit. This is logical, isn't it? I pray. Those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, yes, have experienced Holy Spirit renewal. Which, of course, is the regeneration, the spirit regenerating, then indwelling. And, beloved, that's the preview. That is the part. That's the portion. That, as many have called it, is the already, which you've experienced, the already. The already of our great salvation, the inward renewal, the indwelling presence of God's spirit, restoring our soul and enabling us to live as we ought, to choose God's way. Much we've commented on about that. That's the already. However, that is not the whole. We ourselves, Christian, still await what? The not yet. We still wait for the not yet. We have not yet severed all ties to the old man. We have the first fruit of the Holy Spirit, but we do not yet have the full fruit of the Spirit, which is our new glorified body and perfection. Not only to live as we ought, but to live as we ought always, without sin. And we await that. What a blessed thought. We have fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Yes, as we learned in Galatians 5, 22-23. That fruit, but not all physical, complete, and final fruit, is it? Church, to continue stating the evident reality... And here it is, not all humanity have this, do they? Not all humanity have this. That is why not all will be okay. Not all of humanity have the first fruits of the Spirit. Not all have the pledge of the Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance, Ephesians 1.14. And that's very important to note with first fruits, Christian, listen, to have received the first fruits of the Spirit, note it, this really sets us up for the end of the chapter, is to have experienced the first step of an unbreakable process. Can you grab that with me this morning? To have the first fruits is to experience the first step in an unbreakable process to glory. Again, more later in Romans 8. 
To have received the first fruits of the Spirit is to have received something from God. And here we come full circle from the Old Testament. The child of God, or the people of God giving to God, but here, capture this. This here, the first fruits of the Spirit, is to have God give something to you. Not you give something to God. Think about security in that. Thus, this is Almighty God giving and pledging. And what's the implication of that, beloved? Let's do this together. If God has given it, if God has pledged it, if God has guaranteed it, then logical inference what? It cannot be taken away, right? It cannot. This is God's plan, His degree. It can't be taken away. It will see through to completion. First fruits means it assures us. Here's your bedrock going into this new week. And a reminder, it is coming. It is coming. Glorification for you, saint, is sure. It's coming. Yes, beloved, the first fruits of the Spirit reminds us, points us to the end. Verse 18, the coming glory to be revealed to us and to the cosmos, that we are indeed His. Now, the first fruits of the Spirit is about what God has done and what is ahead by way of His plan. We, of course, do not live in the past, nor do we live right now in the future. We live in the in-between, don't we? And while we live in between, while we live in the already and the not yet, we do so just as the creation does. We live with the creation in the already and the not yet. And as we do, like creation, we ourselves, Christian, groan. Groan, that's right, yes, our groan. That groan of the creation we saw in verse 22 last week. But it is also same word, same idea, the same groan of those with the first fruits of the Spirit. Verse 23, the groan of the redeemed. Now, I want you to note the concert there between the creation, knowing what should be, yearning for that, and that part of your soul that yearns as well. Do you see that yearning, longing, the connection there that will be renewed, that will be fulfilled? Now, a few aspects of our groan that we just need to comment on here. Number one, this groan... Again, and we've commented on this, but let's be clear on this, is the same, not only the same groan of the creation, but note this, key adjective, the same enduring groan. It's an endurance of this groan. It perpetuates the same yearning and subjection, same enduring moan that cannot be helped. It continues, it's enduring. So like creation, those at the first fruits of the Spirit groan here and now. So we, believer, groan because we're in between our justification and our glorification, right? The already and the not yet. We have a new position, a coming future, and those both give us great joy today, right? Our position, right, and our potential, which is an actual future in glory. But as we journey between those two poles, we do so, to state another obvious this morning, We journey in between them in pain and suffering, don't we? We languish, in fact, under curse. And so we groan. Secondly, that groan is inward. Note the domain there. That groan springs from the already renewed part. This is not our flesh groaning. This is not our decaying body groaning. This is the inward. See it? Groaning inwardly, which makes sense. That's where the Holy Spirit resides. The first fruits of the Spirit within us yearns and moans and longs for more. And what we groan inwardly for should be obvious to any Christian, right, beloved? It should be obvious. I mean, to the true saint, they now think by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, but they live and move in this world with its decay. And what's the result? What's the obvious result? There's soul trouble, isn't there? There is no concert with those things right? Soul trouble. Why? Because there's a disconnect between their life and a decaying environment. That's why verse 23, see, it says, we wait eagerly. We wait eagerly. I love that. For adoption as sons. Now here's your manner of these verses, eager waiting. This is not because we are not yet adopted, by the way. At 8.15, Paul already covered that earlier in this chapter, verse 15. 
In fact, remember, our adoption, the reality of our adoption, right, causes us to cry what? Abba, Father, right? But that adoption, like so many things, is part of a process. Adoption, true, but not fully and complete yet. We wait eagerly for the full glory of our adoption to be revealed, our body, and to the cosmos. As the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, verse 19, so too we, beloved, wait for the full revealing of our adoption. That day is coming. The manifestation to all, I mentioned this last week, just a blessed thought, this one is mine. It's given in verse 23 that full adoption as sons is the redemption of our bodies. See that? We have been adopted, and note this, with full rights and privileges as sons and daughters of God. We have a new spirit, a new identity, a new inheritance, but one thing still remains to complete our adoption. And in the coming revelation, it's a new body. And to be adopted by God is to be given not just the spirit of a son, but also the body of a son as well. And for God's Son, it's a glorified body. And oh, how the Christian yearns for that body. Paul says this elsewhere. And we've looked at this already and repeatedly, but I think it's important again when you think about the context of creation. Jeremy read from verse 21 of the fifth chapter in 2 Corinthians. Listen to this. At the beginning of that chapter, Paul says this, by the way, referring to... Everything that is the difference between the temporal and the eternal. He's been working through this argument in chapter 4, and then he says this. Listen to this in chapter 5, verse 2. For in this tent, note the language he uses. Not bricks and mortar, right? The tent, temporary dwelling. We groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. See the language? being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. See that? Same language of groaning, temporal sense of this tent and body. But here it is, the Spirit guarantees you, Christian, that a new body is coming. This is the same guarantee, by the way, expressed to the Philippians. Note this and hear it, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. Paul says to that church, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then note this, what will he do at his coming? He will transform our lowly body our tent, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Same idea. Do you see that? This is what's coming. And of course, this is described fully in 1 Corinthians 15. Right? If we were to read that chapter, let me just read you this portion and I want you to know it. What of this body? Just listen. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. What are we looking forward to? Paul unpacks this to the Corinthian church. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first. Now listen to this. But the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are we, are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Tremendous passage talking about the resurrection body and following Christ. Beloved, that's what's coming, glory. But we're not there yet. And because we're not there yet, but we have the Holy Spirit in us with the guarantee of what's coming, because of those things, we groan, right? We groan. 
we groan. Now, one last comment. Such truth demands in light of our waiting. This text tells us that Christians will groan as we wait. Look at verse 23. It says that, does it not? We will groan as we wait. That must be true. But let's consider this morning, is it really the practice of some Christians? Do all Christians groan? In fact, I might submit to you, for some, they groan far too little, don't they? And what do we mean by that? Some Christians have grown far too comfortable in their tent, in between. Is that not true? Far too comfortable in between. Feeling good with spirit security inward, they rest in this present dying, decaying world. Far from a disconnect that they should have between body and soul, they're feeling very connected here. They actually groan, if we're being honest, right? Not just them, but even in our own hearts at times. The groan is for more of the present perishable things, isn't it? The groan sometimes, if we're really, really being honest, is for more cursed things. Beloved, let it not be so for you. Our groan is because our soul is eagerly waiting. One more attitude here that marks our living here and now. Not only our groan, but our hope. Continue in verse 24. It says, For in this hope we were saved. The apostle says, for in this hope we were saved. In this hope. The hope, what is that? Of the first fruits of the Spirit, right? That's what he's been talking to. The adoption, the bodily redemption. So not just the soul saving, the justification, the initial, the already, the hope of the not yet, right? That, that, that's the key. That's the hope. In that hope, a holistic hope. So simply the hope of a new spirit, a new name, and a new body. Don't miss that here. It's the hope of our salvation, isn't it? And not just the felt hope. Let's get into hope now for a moment. But true hope. We, of course, as we consider our hope, have covered that in chapter 5. So we're not going to recircle and repeat that. We do just remind, though, by way of one comment, biblical hope, as we covered, is not the wishful thinking hope we often employ. I hope for good weather tomorrow. I hope next year is better than this and so on. That's wishful thinking. That's not hope. I wish. Biblical hope, beloved, is certain. We covered this. It's a certain statement rooted in a sure coming truth. So what have we covered? The Christian can say, in their hope that is certain, my body may die but it will rise again. I'll have a resurrected body. Right? Isn't that amazing? That's true. That's biblical hope. The will, and for sure, and the certain. And I trust it goes without saying here that this hope is glorious to you this morning because it is certain. I hope it's not just Sunday school truth that you feel like, yeah, I should get around that. And It's true, and it fuels your everything. These verses teach us something further about biblical hope. Keep reading. Verse 24. Now, hope that is seen, note this, is not hope. Tapping the senses here. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. Let's look at this. Westmount, here we see that biblical hope is unseen. All around us, consider what's all around you. Is it what? Rationalism, skepticism, and doubt. Isn't that the world that you live in? Right? You live in a world of I have to see to believeism. Is that not true? I have to see to believeism. Further, we live in a I have to see. Now, here's the jump. I have to see to have hope. I have to see to have hope. You may say, ah, I don't know about that, but let's unpack this a bit. Is it not true that Thomas was a disciple of Jesus? Was he not? Did Thomas see greater things than we see? And did Thomas doubt? And what did Thomas say? Unless I what? Activate my senses and kick in my rationalism. (laughs) Unless those things are operative, I will not believe. What a lesson for us. Church, we can be infected with Thomas-itis, if we could call it. 
that I have to see it to have hope. But I want you to grab this with me because this text takes us there. True hope has always and will always rise above that, hasn't it? It always has. This is, let's do the lesser first. True hope or real hope is the stuff of underdog stories, is it not? It's the stuff of fanciful scripts. And it is not unreal, is it? Effective hope, effective hope always has the ability to look past what it can see, if you track with me. Even effective lower hope in this world looks past it. What are we talking about? Effective lower worldly hope has an ability to see past what is seen. The score is 13-2. No one sees the team scoring only two runs winning, do they? Nobody sees. You don't see that. You look at the scoreboard. You look at the dugouts. What do you see? For those little kids to have hope, they have to cast their senses on something more, don't they? They have to look beyond what their eyes see because, you know, the worldly response would be just give up. It's over. It's 13-2. No one sees what will be. The body's out of shape. That's what you see. No one sees the running three miles each day producing something. That's the unseen. But you do it like the kids playing hard, the runner running hard. Eyes fixed on something unseen. And where are we going with that? We function in this lower hope that doesn't see, that brings results. How much more, Christian, you do not see the creation without seeing futility, do you? Right? If you rely on your senses, you see futility. Christian, so do you do not see your body as glorious and perfected, do you? None of us do, do we? Not right now. Christian hope is not dependent on what your eyes can see. Listen, hope never has operated that way. We want hope to function that way, right? We do. So you look around in an evil world, lots of decay, ungodliness, and death celebrated. And if you keep fixing your senses on that and laying your hope in what you see, you will never experience real, true biblical hope, will you? This is why expressions, which are a dime a dozen, are abundant, such as this. It just seems so hopeless. What's that rooted in? Everything the eyes can see, is it not? It just seems so hopeless. And maybe you've been guilty of that in these days. Have you not? You look around in this age today, and what do you say? It just seems so hopeless. With each law, with each movement in the church, With each relative, with each friend, with each departure, with each deconstruction, it just seems so hopeless. Sight. Sight. And the reason is because like many worldly groans, we tie our groaning to sight, don't we? We groan for the things that we see. 100% of the time, listen to me, that's hopeless. It's hopeless to tie your groans to vision. Every time. Westmount, such sight-dependent hope is not the hope of the Bible. Biblical hope. See the verse, and here then Hebrews 11. See the verse, and listen to this. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of what? Things not seen. Right? That's biblical hope. More Christian, listen. Christian hope is present hiddenness. Christian hope is present hiddenness. Christian hope is future revealing. The Bible knows of no hope whatsoever that is seen in this age. That's the world's hope. The world's hope needs to see it, to rationalize it, to believe it. Now that's one aspect of our hope. Let's keep reading for another. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Springing off the reality of that biblical hope being unseen, the text says, look at it, what does it say? If that is the case, what is that, that we hope for what we do not see, then, logical inference, we wait for it with patience. This is good stuff here. 
you have a New American Standard or LSV, they render it this way. With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Really good. This is earnest waiting. This is the long-necked, tiptoed gaze, remember last week, of the creation in verse 19. Church, this waiting, here's another correction for us this morning when we think of waiting. This waiting is not the waiting that we are so very much used to. This is not the waiting to hear back from someone. Wondering if you'll hear back from someone. And often never hearing back from someone. That's the waiting we know of, isn't it? It's not the waiting with the wishful thinking and wanting and then finding out what you've been waiting for is just the opposite of what you expected. That's worldly waiting. That's not biblical waiting. The waiting in view here really comes through in that word patience. I love it. Patience. Biblical patience. It's this. It's waiting that knows what it is waiting for is certain and surely coming soon. Do you see that? That's godly waiting. I know what's coming and I patiently endure. More tied to that, this is waiting that endures present circumstances. Because not only do they know what's coming, they know that this is temporary. See that? That's biblical waiting. One day, church, hope will no longer exist. I pray you think about that. One day, hope will no longer exist. One day on that coming day, when the glory is revealed, our hope will fade away. Faith will become sight. Of faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love. Why? Because it never ends. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-13. Biblical hope is unseen. Biblical hope is temporary. And with that in context here, we could add one final one to make sure we understand biblical hope right. And this is very different to our worldly understanding of hope. Biblical hope is always given, felt, and lived out in the context of suffering. Right? Let's look at this. This is where patience comes in, not just because it could take time. The world knows these things. Listen, unbelievers know how to wait a long time, don't they? I'm always amazed for the vain things that unbelievers wait for. We're coming up to the season of that particular Friday when they'll stand up and wait overnight, maybe for two, three days for vain things. That's a notorious example of this, and it always amazes me. Now listen, standing in line at a shopping mall, there's no suffering in that. Well, maybe with the the line fights and all of that, but you know what I mean. There's no suffering. They're waiting for their candy. There's no suffering in that. It is like a kid waiting for his presence, filled with delight. That's not biblical waiting, right? That's not what's in the context of the New Testament. Even more, that's not biblical hope, waiting in hope, not at all. Biblical hope waits patiently in difficulty. That's the key. And that is why so often you see suffering and hope tied together in the New Testament, right? So often, we've seen it in this letter. Even we've seen hope springing from suffering. Let's be reminded of Romans 5. Turn, look at it with me. Let's be reminded of this. A context of hope. Look at, look at chapter 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And one could say, Paul, how can we do that? Well, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This is the truth. Again, we've covered that. Now listen, from Paul to Peter. Turn over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1. Hope and suffering. Hope and suffering. 1 Peter 1. Let me just read these verses. Listen very carefully to the partnership here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, look at the language here, ready to be revealed in the last time. But even more, verse 6, 
In this you rejoice. So what's the context of our waiting, Peter? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope in suffering. And even more, if you were to turn, go right to the end, Revelation 2. Let's just look at one church. There's so many places we could go to. Revelation 2. Let's go to Ephesus. This letter to the Ephesian church. Let's just read these few verses. Revelation 2, 2 and 3, and then we're going to peek in on 7. Verse 2 says this, I know, this is to the church, to the saints, I know your works, your toil, and look at this, your patient endurance. And how are they patiently enduring? In what context? And how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Note that. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Then this, verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up, note this, for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Now let's not miss this while we're in the churches in Revelation. Go down to verse 7. This is the outflow of the patiently waiting. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Always suffering in the context of hope, or hope in the suffering of context. Always. That is how we endure, beloved, with our minds fixed, with our vision fixed, not on what we can see now, but what is guaranteed then. Every time. Christian, our waiting biblically, biblical waiting is amid curse, suffering, difficulty, and sin. But while we do wait in difficulty, here is the joy. We also wait with certainty, right? Yes, we have the first fruit, so we know that the future harvest, the fullness is coming. We know, and here's the bedrock truth in our waiting, in our groaning. We know our present groaning will turn in to future glory. Right, Christian? You know that. Church, biblical hope is patient endurance, eager waiting, in trial, in suffering, knowing that hope, the hope we have as Christians, is not simply the act of hoping, because that'd be a good thing, or wishful desire, because our flesh really wants that. That's not waiting and hope. But the Christian knows that our hope is about our Savior, Our hope, in fact, is embodied in the unchanging Christ. Hebrews 13, verse 8. It is Christ gone before us. Christ giving us His Spirit. Christ guaranteeing us, pledging us the first fruits of the resurrection. And for those following Him. Our hope, listen Christian, our hope knows that Christ said that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then this, whoever comes to me, I will never what? Cast out. John 6.37. That's your hope. Our hope is sure of this, like Paul, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. Our hope is this. He who calls you, Westmount Saint, is faithful. He will surely do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.24. That's the hope. That New Testament hope is rooted in. And that this book, Romans, this chapter 8, stands on. That is the only hope that is worth anything between the already and the not yet. Christian, that is our hope. And let us hold our hope, and let's do this as we close this morning. Not just hang on to hope, but hold it in proper balance with our groan. I think all of us suffer turbulence, and we need to recalibrate on this balance, don't we? We lean to the groans, or we lean too much to the hope. As much as we groan, and we have learned that if we're a Christian, we will groan, our groanings must never crowd out our hope and cause us to forget God's promises. Our groan must not impair enthusiasm and zeal. Our groan must never cause passivity or fuel laziness. Our groan is not a reality to create pessimism or stimulate unbelief, right? No, our groan must stir us up to love and good works. 
And the understanding, what are we saying in this season at Westmount? This is what it must do to, to stir us up to this, that there is so much work to do, right? There's just so much work to do. We look out at the fields, there's so much work to do. This world is dying, and others with it. But yet, as we think about our groaning rightly, let us not swing the other way, where our hope cancels out our groan. Our hope is yearning and a real expectancy amid a real world of suffering and decay, yes. And as such, but here it is, our hope does not try to force God's hand. You see this so often, don't you? I'm going to just force your hand, God, and pray it this way and, and do this. And Our hope does not try to experience some sense of future glory well before the appointed time. Many try that, right? Our hope never presumes on God. Our hope is real. It waits biblically, but our hope, listen, beloved, never presumes on the promises of God. Westmount, let us get the balance right. And if we could say this, let's groan in hope. Let's groan in hope. Let us wait eagerly, knowing that in Christ, the first fruits, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Our redemption is not yet complete in this body, on this earth. But in Christ, we are complete. We are. Full manifestation coming. Present position, sure. In Christ, listen, groans find rest and hope is found. And I would add, only in Christ. Only in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you groaning in hope. Lord, let us keep that balance, sure, according to your word. Father, we recognize that we can groan too little. We recognize we can be vigorous in our presumption of you. Lord, we pray that you would help us continue in an enduring groan, waiting patiently with steadfast endurance that you give for the coming glory to be revealed. Oh God, we pray that you would help us as we leave this place. It is in your Son's name that we plead this. Amen.